Welcome back to what was once Potter's Pockets, episode 22, but as uh, we are now starting the fourth of seven books, we are at a, a middle point, a, a crossroads. We are now changing our names. We are pivoting. We are redefining ourselves. We are transforming. We are, we are ourselves anime guy in this way. We are becoming conversations at the Leaky Cauldron. We thought it had a better feel and more captured the spirit of our endeavor here. Three teachers at the local uh, uh, languishing spot, doing what we do best, sharing free associations with each other, um, and, and, and you know, be singing the songs that we sing. And so we, we're going to talk about the first four chapters of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire uh, this time around. And I, I may drop a side lecture on the cover because it's just very interesting to me, this American cover, very beautiful. And so we're gonna talk about the Riddle House, the scar, the invitation, and back to the borough. And before I get any farther, please let me uh, warmly and cordially welcome my two esteemed guests and colleagues, Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, you two. Cheers. Howdy. Clink, clink. Glad to be with you at the Leaky Cauldron. Yeah, it's quite a crowd in here tonight, I gotta say. Yeah. I really the they make the drinks strong and sweet, and it's a it's a combination I, I I enjoy when keeping magical company. <laughs> and so, before in the pre-show, we talked a little bit about wanting to start with uh, Crossroads, but let's talk a little bit about the beginning here, the Riddle House. And so, Sarah, you had made a comment uh, about the nice house gone to ruin. Uh, in in uh, answer to a comment I made about sort of this character from Final Fantasy VII being a Luciferian character who was sort of a hero who experienced a fall, sort of a Cain-like or Luciferian fall. And you, you made a connection between that and who Tom Riddle is and this house that starts this Harry Potter book where we've seen these connections between Riddle and Harry Potter before. And so did you want to say something about that, please? Yeah, I mean, I, I always think it's funny, or not funny, excuse me, I think it's worth discussing why authors choose to start their books the way they choose to start their books. Um, like, why begin in that way? Um, I, I know I've taken like one or two creative writing classes in my life, but I've read a boatload of books and I know that... Um, I know enough to respect craft. So, you know, she could have started so many places and she chooses to describe um, this house and she chooses to start a novel about Harry Potter, which by the time the fourth one rolls around is super popular. She chooses to spend like 15 or so pages before she even mentions, um, before she even mentions his name. And um, I was sort of reminded about um, the opening of, uh, Tennessee Williams' Streetcar Named Desire. I don't know if either of you have read that, but yes, a um, long ago. Yeah, the I've had this date for a long time. <laughs> yeah, Blanche has been alive for quite some time, um, and I, I taught it for a long time at my old school. And we spent always spent a class period looking at the way that house is described and figuring out ways in which the house sort of represents. The people who live in it. Um, it's a play, so of course the set and how it's described is very intentional on the part of the playwright, but if 
if we look at the opening of the Riddle House, it's um, this, this really proud home. Um, I mean, enough to have a paid gardener. And, um, but, but its windows have been boarded, tiles are missing from its roof, ivy spreading unchecked over its face. Once a fine looking manor and easily the largest and grandest building for miles around, the Riddle House was now damped, derelict, and unoccupied. Um, and I'm sort of reminded of a couple of things. The first thing I wrote on the side of the, of the paragraph here was metaphor, question mark. Um, but that, um, you know, in, in a lot of fantasy literature, like high fantasy or epic fantasy, evil is this like creating force, this poisonous, uh, parasitic, seemingly uh, a, a, being, a, a being without form or, you know, it, it travels kind of in poison things like the Turkish delight or the voice of Saruman or whatever. And um, I, that's what I was reminded of when I read the, the phrase, the ivy spreading unchecked. And then just to know, like, by the end of the chapter, what Voldemort looks like uh, and how how far the mighty have fallen, so to speak. Um, and, you know, to like pull a phrase from Ollivander, like he did great things, terrible, yes, but great. Like he was great once, highly skilled, um, well-known and, and like fallen into disrepair. Um, and I just thought that that was, that's interesting. I think houses are always, metaphors um or not always but very often metaphors in like gothic literature like the house of usher and all of that um anyway that's what i was thinking oh yeah i i really like the uh connection there to how this book sort of fits into the other the literature you know like the fantasy the gothic um the english novel you know i i mean this one like like you mentioned, it's it's size, it's scope, it's clearly got certain pretend in the first three books, um, but now she's really just like flexing her her writing muscles because she's she's got kind of carte blanche at this point, right? Um, and so the way she starts it out is with um, the house, but also the the village itself, right? And the kind of rumors that surround. The house it's called the riddle house oh. and it's called creepy and i think you know both of those refer to yeah. what happened there which is right lying there with their eyes wide open cold as ice still in their dinner things it's like the the riddle or one aspect of it is like how does that happen how do three apparently healthy people just drop dead um and then that's sort of like what the the, the village discusses and it's like this problem that they pose to themselves and they they have they're like bound to find the simplest solution right and so they they all focus on the gardener and of course there's a whole metaphorical resonance to that right away too right the gardener did it he's he's the one that we're going to blame and scapegoat and um and by the end of the chapter we see that he's like a very brave guy like he's um he's terrified and yet he's he's trying to still do the right thing uh and we get this this further riddle i guess of um uh how how could uh 
this being in the chair be more terrifying than an enormous, you know, snake that slithers past. It's like the the riddle shifts from like murder because now we sort of understand at least a little bit about that to like the fear and the the being that's behind the murder is, is I think where I'm left like really my mind can't even really um, conceptualize what such a horrifying thing would would be. Yeah, uh, but it's it's a great opening. So sort of like the image over the first uh, chapter in the American edition, which is the snake. And so it's like the physical embodiment versus the principle of evil that it represents, right? That which lies beyond it and is so much more than it that you can even conceptualize. Sort of the power of villains like it that don't show their true form. But um, oh, don't even mention it. I know, it's very scary. So yeah, and I was thinking about that in context of Lord Voldemort and uh, how Lord Voldemort for all of us is potentially that which we refuse to face, which causes us absolute terror because of it in our life. Um, and insofar as that which you refuse to face, that's Lord Voldemort. But I wanted to ask you too, what you thought about the fact that this, this book begins with a dream and to what extent that's a commentary on the, the reading of literature. And of itself, and insofar as this is a dream which directly connects Harry Potter to Lord Voldemort, which connects Lord Voldemort even strong, more strongly to our story, um, to what extent is, uh, is this uh, story suggesting that it is itself a dream, which is a gathering space for us um, uh, to bring us all closer to, uh, together, and that I don't know that that is sort of a fusion of light and dark magic or something like that in the same way that uh, Harry embodies the hero and Voldemort, the villain, and yet they, are, they, they share this very deep connection. Is it Voldemort is that which is necessary to produce somebody as great as Harry? The hero requires an adversary or something. I don't know. What do you make of this dream? <laughs> I, I like that interpretation a lot. Um, I mean, I think. When I when I see the scar, you know, um, just by itself, that makes me think of uh, the great scene in the Odyssey where yes. Odysseus's identity is revealed by his scar, and uh, yeah, that like we get that that plunge into his past as a kid, hunting the boar and getting ga gashed by it, or you know. So I find it interesting too the way that Harry gets only sort of fragments of the dream and we see the whole dream and so what's that about like or we see a lot of the dream i guess we should say we, we never see everything because the book is as long as it is it leaves out plenty of things so I, I just think it's cool though that harry he has these like scattered um images but he he can't really piece them together yes yeah and it also reminds me just to throw this in there then uh the scar is mentioned again in dante when he looks down from Canto 26 of the Paradiso back down to, uh, reflecting back to his experience in Canto 26 of the Inferno of Ulysses, though indirectly, he sees the, the space of the journey of Ulysses as a scar on the world. And so, you know, also in the Purgatorio, Dante had had three dreams and also um, sleeping Sleeping and uh, the function of dream functions in Homer as well. In fact, Agamemnon has a dream in book two and Odysseus often falls asleep and that's when the action 
is. So um, dreams have a major epic role. And so it's almost as if in taking on this, this middle book, it's as if she's starting to show her, show her hands. She, show, she has this tremendous length, this tremendous introduction, these epic motifs of using dream and uh, uh, the scar also just evokes, you know, these several epic books as well. It's almost as if she's taking her place in history and it's a much bigger and grander place simply than popular fantasy novel that makes lots of money. Right. Yeah, I mean, something what something Wes brought up um, was that she um, she starts with the town, which I think is interesting too, because aside from like the Dursleys and um, uh, what's her name, Aunt Marge, which I I guess she's a Dursley too. Um, we really don't have much of a sense of of like the Muggle world, and like the we also don't have much of a sense of history and how magic um, functions and has functioned or not, as the case may be, um, in relationship to the wider British world. And that seems like a significant move for her um, to, to go so far back in time and to also feature characters who are not magic, right? So um, I, I'm not really sure what else to say about that but that seems like another thing that's different about the book and okay. and maybe uh, maybe like that like not just pulling on the strings of say epic um, epic literature that she's referring to and, and we've been talking about this for a while that um, and that's part of you know the, the thrust of our conversation is regularly the ways in which um, like classic literature finds its way into the first three books but um, as you mentioned, Wes, like, this is also about English literature and, like, um, the history of, like, the English countryside novel or the countryside village and the way that those social hierarchies um, are reflected in the story, I think, is also significant. Like, there's a class dynamic that is in the, in the opening chapter. Um, there's a class dynamic in the fourth chapter about... Ferraris and fancy, uh, fancy outfits, um, and like that's a that's a reoccurring theme in a lot of British literature. So as much as she's anchoring herself in like the, um, you know, the tradition of the ancient or the classic, she's also um, pulling on a lot of strings from her more recent uh, forefathers and foremothers. You know. Yeah, well, I have sort of a dark question for you, Wes. Um, and maybe it's just conspiracy, maybe not though. Um, do you think that Harry has this dream at this particular time during the summer when he is at home with his family after having first learned sort of about the darknesses in the wizarding world, both of the uses of dark magic and of betrayal, that potentially this dream could represent sort of his unconscious thoughts and feelings towards the Dursleys. In fact, they are in tremendous danger while he is there, and that insofar as he is connected to Tom Riddle, he is connected to Tom Riddle's decisions, that it is in fact their decisions that have so far distinguished them, but that that's going to be an ongoing battle with him for the rest of his life as a sort of wizard with these powers who has been mistreated by these muggles. Is he going to thus 
mistreat them when he becomes more powerful than they. Uh, and is that, is that something that's at play here? I think that's fair. Uh, Cause he, the Harry Potter that we meet here is like a slightly more sarcastic uh, Harry Potter. Like he also has these um, sort of this interior monologue thing going on where he imagines what people would react with if he like tried to tell them about his scar hurting. Um, and he's, he's sort of like dismissive of it. Uh, he's definitely no more empathetic towards the Dursleys than he ever was. You know, he, he sort of scorns them more than he fears them at this point. And that's definitely like a Voldemortian turn, I guess, like going down the path of, of despising the people that you had feared or something like as you gain power and they are revealed as, as equally vulnerable as you. Um, that, that's, that's pretty, I think a legit way to read this. And I think that makes the character a lot more interesting, frankly, like if he's just a hero and just sort of swoops in and saves the day and this and that, you know, that's okay. We've seen that three books and running. Okay. So we've got to sort of deepen Harry's character a bit. Um, give him this this horrible dream. Uh, have him have this kind of psychic connection to the ultimate uh, dark lord, and um, and of course he saved Pettigrew's life, and we're told that that sort of establishes a kind of link between them as well. So so that's that's cool. And then of course the person he looks up to the most in the world, right? Who he realizes that's the person he should tell this this story to. Um, he still. Uh, he's still separated from that person. So there's that like additional kind of weight on his heart at this point. And, uh, and he sort of leaves out even when he finally decides to, to tell him like something weird happened, he leaves out the thing about the dream and he's still doing, you know, that thing we noticed from time to time that Harry will just like not disclose and doesn't like seem to trust or seems afraid of trusting, you know, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And he's like very sympathetic in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, I want to bring up, yeah, it's like we are reestablishing our connection with him as in, in the way that you reestablish your connection with like a movie or a theater. Like there's a, there's a time of transition between your outside world and you taking on the frame of reference of the hero, but I, I want to suggest two lines we could go down here just because they're both very interesting. I want to talk about either the two messengers who are not like the archetypal Hedwig messenger who is so dignified, um, and um, and uh, so the pig widgeon that we meet, as well as the sort of paradise birds, the birds from the tropical birds that again Hedwig does not approve of, and what that means. But also we get a, another eruption of the magical world into the Dursley's household. There seem always to be every summer at least one major eruption. And um, uh, sort of what that means and the, the joke that's played by Fred on the boys and the fact that the dad knew it was Fred and not George. I guess he could just recognize him. Um, but also sort of the, him keeping his hand on Harry's shoulder and insisting that the Dursleys say goodbye to him to treat him with that dignity and whether that's sort of a key to Ron's and the Weasley's characters and why we love them so much, that they treat everybody with dignity. And so, yeah, so those two uh, paths are, or another one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, 
I guess I, I always love the scene where um, <laughs> they're talking to each other through a wall um, and they can't quite figure out um, how to get to Privet Drive. Like, yes, there's this, this, there's this explosion, um, of course, but it's not without, um, it's not without like a lot of, I don't know. It's, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I guess what I'm trying to say is <laughs> like, um, uh, when, yeah, no, I, I'm no, when the, when the magical world like finds its way into Privet Drive, it's not with, um, finesse. Yes. Shall we say? That's like, right. That's right. You know that, that, that it's a there's a, a of like imperfection in the wizarding world. You know, for all of their you know all of their powers and their cap capacity to oh we can travel through fire and um, we use owl posts and it seems like well their lives would be just so much more efficient or their lives would just be so much more convenient or comfortable. There's a degree to which we're reminded that like actually they're just different you know like uh the way that the townspeople talk about frank and like oh yeah he never wanted to hang out with us at the pub well someone just one lone person pipes up and says he had a hard time in the war and he's just a quiet fellow like like um in in both little hangleton and in uh, Privet Drive or Little Whinging, whatever the town is called, um, there's like a unwillingness to accept people who are different, and like difference is seen as imperfect, and a desire to see the other as imperfect drives one to maybe try to appear perfect yourself. Look at like what what Mr. Dursley does. He wears his like best suit in the world. He they try to have like this perfect little family. Um, portrait with Dudley sitting in a chair and Vernon reading his newspaper um, as they as the Weasleys arrive like there's just all of these pretenses and I love how Mr. Weasley is like trying to make conversation like oh do you use like electricity or do you um, I collect batteries <laughs> um, and I guess I don't know um, I think that's super endearing um, the they don't seem as a family to resent difference. Like, um, and I think that's, um, I think that's pretty significant. Like they, they're all so diverse as kids. And um, I, I don't know. I think that that's, that's why I like them is that anybody is welcome. Um, and not just welcome, like, Oh, come as you are, do your thing. We won't bother you. But any, everybody is like a potential family member. Um, and, and that's a, that's, I think that's why I like them. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, if that responds to your question, Alex, oh, but. Okay, it um, does. And I, I just want to put another sub thread on this that I forgot to bring up earlier that I brought up at the end of last time, which is why is Peter Pettigrew being called Wormtail by both Voldemort and then by the narrator? And then even later, and I think this weakens my theory that Voldemort is just being cruel with him, but strengthens another theory that this is just now how the author thinks of him, and thus we think of him. Uh, has um, Harry think about him as Wormtail, and then explains who he is in the story through the function of his personal memory of him, an explanation given by him of his own memory. And so 
even to Harry now, he has become Wormtail and um, sort of what that means as well. So Wes, I don't know if you want to respond to the first thing that we said or the thing that came before that actually, or that too. The gardens are rich tonight. <laughs> I, I'm going to do my best. Yeah. Also, I thought it was cool, like tying together what you just said with what Sarah was saying about family members, right? That's part of what horrified Ron so much when he realized that his rat was actually this person. Like he was, he was a part of their family uh, for many years. And he was sort of like passed, handed down in the family, um, Scabbers that is. And then for him to be revealed as a uh, worm tail, right? This friend who betrayed um, Harry's parents, then that, that really throws a wrench into the, the uh, family a dynamic. Uh, it's, it's a bit awkward, right? And so um, that, that's like a huge question in these books, I, I, I think. As, I, as I'm reading them now and thinking about it, right, like what is, um, what is a family supposed to be like and, and how does one uh, form, grow into a family? Or um, what are the kinds of rules and how much mercy can be granted when the rules are broken and in maybe even very profound ways, like through betrayal. Um, th those are the sorts of things that Rowling seems really interested in. And, uh, and everyone sort of feels that. Like, I think as a reader, you feel sympathy for the Dursleys even here. Because, yeah, they are trying really hard in the way that they understand to, like, present themselves as this good family. And... Um, you know, Aunt Petunia now is trying to get them to be on a diet, uh, and they keep breaking the diet behind her back uh, in these like pathetic ways, right? Like stealing each other's grapefruit chunk. It's it's sad and it's like hilarious at the same time, and it's just like very familiar. You know, it's very family like. Um, you get the mention of the PlayStation; it gets thrown out the window, <laughs> and uh, and the games that uh, Dudley's playing on that, right? Um, and so it's like, that's, I could see that, right? Like Harry is Dudley's sibling, you know, uh, as, as much as he might not want it to be the case. They, they, are, they do have that relationship. And, uh, and I think, you know, to the point about the, the birds, I suppose something similar is going on there where you've got this, um, this sort of like mini-me of Hedwig, uh, Pigwidgeon, which is an interesting name. Uh, I, I think... It comes from some other um, fantasy or fairy tale thing where it's like a, a kind of little fairy that minces around or something. That's at least, if I'm remembering right, how Tolkien talks about it in his fairy stories um, essay. And uh, and then like the, the glamorous um, birds that make you think of palm trees and white sands. Well, um, everyone's got that family member, I think, too, right, that they sort of resent for being so... Um, carefree and you know living somewhere nice and warm while they're suffering through the cold well and that's something i wanted to ask about this this book so something we thought we we noticed in the books before was sort of the rising dark tone and to to what extent in, in this book we start to see that becoming more manifest in a more uh, articulated or embodied fashion even even early on um in the story um and so yeah i don't know if i can bridge that connection 
fight yet. Um, what yeah. about the uh, the name of the the pub that they're at? Is the Hanged Man? Right. Uh, well, that's that's yeah. That's giveaway, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. And I mean, so what's emphasized? So I mean, and well, you know, let's think about the name itself, the Goblet of Fire, and the connection to wizards and witches. Um, uh, though, though it is perfectly po possible that a goblet of fire could be a source of illumination or could, could be sort of a place of sort of alchemical rebirth, just to get back to our theme of crossroads and transformation, it, um, it, it seems as if, uh, you know, there's also the connection of fire as a purifying or even used by, you know, fascists either in Germany in the 20th century or, you know, puritanical America in Salem, um, uh, based on a uh, weird reading of you know, practices described by Dante. But, um, but it does seem, um, and I think we will see this later on, so I'm not sure if I'm reading this into the story from what's there or what will be there. Um, that the darkness present in the wizarding world and thus in every world, making this fantasy world sort of just as heavy and thus real or weighty or, or, or a place where a moral holiday could not be taken, uh, sort of the anchor hits the ground or, you know, hits the waves here. It's like the dark mark. This is a place where evil happens too. This is a place where your decisions matter. This too is a place where there's a gambit between good and evil and your choices will define the reality in which you live. I think that's interesting because, um, so I just, one thing I noticed is sort of related to what you were saying, Alex, the, um, uh, the idea of what, of choices um, and how um, in a in a world of of many potentials where you know there is there are forces of good and there are specters of evil your choices are extremely important your choices as Dumbledore says are ultimately what define you um, and I think it's in chapter four at the beginning of chapter four I'm clipping to find it right now um, where he is packing um and he 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 is furiously scurrying around his house um to pick up his most prized possessions the invisibility cloak he had inherited from his father the broomstick he had gotten from sirius and the enchanted map of hogwarts he had been given by fred and george weasley last year i'm really intrigued by what those three have in common um and like what that says about Harry and what that says about choices like to me one thing that they all have in common is that they are like methods of skirting rules or like time that I don't know um methods of skirting space um like uh the broomstick gets you far far away the invis in, uh, really quickly the invisibility cloak can keep can allow allows Harry and Ron and Hermione at different times to just completely blow off 
the rules that are intentionally designed for their protection. Um, and that seems like a significant trio to me, given what you're talking about, about choice and, um, you know, the responsibility that comes with it, because we've all seen him abdicate that responsibility using those items in, you know, in some kind of combination. Um, Yeah, I'm just now thinking about what those three items mean. Wes, what did you, what did you take on that? Yeah, I, I, I thought about it a little different. Like when you're saying about the Goblet of Fire, if I remember right, Harry doesn't really want to be in the tournament at all, right? He doesn't um, intentionally do that. And these things are also, uh, these are all gifts. Um, each of these things is given to him. Uh, not by any, you know, grace of his own, but by the grace of the givers. Um, and they're sort of like looking out for him. And I think that's kind of interesting because all, all of your free will and your choices are sort of like conditioned within a space that you didn't create. And, and so um, a lot of free will involves like how you uh, deal with these situations that sort of fall upon you and um, that you encounter unwillingly, you know, and that's sort of like what makes Harry, Harry Potter and what makes Voldemort Voldemort is that they approach those in really different ways. Yeah. And I mean, just the fact that uh, he prizes these uh, possessions and that these are possessions that he received from friends because they were his friends or they had some relation of affection to him as opposed to people whose cold, dead hands he's prying them out from, right? Or whose uh, knowledge he has, like, absorbed their brains or destroyed their brains or their bodies in order to acquire, right? It, it, is, it is just as much the item as his connection to the person who gives him the item that gives it a special significance, which is perhaps what makes Voldemort more cold, but also... Um, uh, uh, you know, like Sephiroth, so-called, just uh, in the Final Fantasy reference, too, just to uh, bring back the notion of fantasy and just how interesting it is if a listener listens to this segment and the Final Fantasy one, that these are both manifestations of the same sort of fantasy seed that was first planted by J.R.R. Tolkien. Right, but I would just say that, like, um, I'm not sure we're disagreeing at all. I'm just saying that... Um, you know, I also think the thing that these three things have in common is that they're given to him by people that he looks up to. Like, his yeah. most prized positions are not gifts from his friends. Right. They're gifts from people who he, you know, like he doesn't, he's not talking about, like, the nice broomstick kit that Hermione got him. He's talking, his three most prized possessions are things that, like, come from people who he, um, I don't know who he maybe envies is the wrong word, but who he wants to impress. Um, and uh, I don't know that uh, as a combination, they all, they all feature like a bit of recklessness or a bit of deception, not deception is the wrong word, but like escape, um, like Liberty, um, yes. but taking Liberty, not necessarily Liberty for something like Liberty from Something. All right. All right. How about this? Uh, I think that you said it better. That 
in these people representing an ideal towards which Harry strives. These gifts are like a manifestation of the skills you acquire in attempting to embody a noble ideal and what the sort of benefit is. So if you try and be like the tricksters, Fred and George, you explore more of the, the, the known territory, the Hogwarts, and you learn more about yourself and human nature because of that. And that's something that the Marauders map might help to represent, like one, knowing one's orientation within known territory uh, and other people's too because of one's ability to skirt the rules. And, um, uh, you know, something similar with Sirius and, um, uh, and also his father with the invisibility cloak. Um, and so, because I, it also strikes me that these are the major gifts that he has, right? Like uh, the broom detailing kit is a great gift, but the invisibility cloak is like a divine gift. Nobody else has it, it's unique. Same with his broomstick at this point. The firebolt, unique. And the same with um, the enchanted map of Hogwarts. I mean, these are like angels that he has. And perhaps that's actually part of what it's supposed to represent. These are sort of like messages from the past that give you power if you, if you harness them or something like that. Um, I'm not sure. What do y'all? I do. I, I definitely. I. I. Oh no! I was just going to say that I agree that um, that these are gifts of aspiration. I think is what you said that these this, these are gifts that he has to learn to use in becoming. Um, I'm not sure if that yes. if that's sort of what you were yeah. suggesting that like the various traits, um, the 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 um, the broom for being a good seeker, um, and for um, the other ways that he uses the broom, which yeah, are, I, I know we haven't seen much of, but yeah. And then like the, um, the, the map for um, maybe knowledge or insight. Maybe it's also for, um, you know, the good kind of deception or trickery um, strategy um, and the invisibility cloak cloak. Yeah. I mean, eventually we'll find out how important that is to who he is as like, you know, the son of James Potter, the, the marked one, the chosen one, like that invisibility cloak is central. And I, I do think that you're right, that they are, they are like gifts that he has to learn to use well, because like he can easily abuse them, right? And so a really big part of, of that, like to Wes's point, is like choosing what to do with what you're given. Not everybody's given the same gift. So, um, you know, I, 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 yeah. That's all. That's excellent. I like, yeah, Wes. I, I really like that. And uh, just thinking about like the, uh, the role of magic too, um, that's obviously like the greatest gift that he's given um, is his, his magical ability and the magical protection that, that infuses him. And, uh, and in, in some ways that's um, like the greatest mark of what you might call a metaphorical like class distinction within the books right is like between the magical and the muggle um and harry's uh raised um as if he had as if he's nothing special right but that only serves to like make him that much more amazing uh as we i think we talked about you know back in the first book so that even the thing that seemed like 
he was being deprived like turned out to be a gift for him uh like <laughs> that's right. the kind of charmed life that he well you know one way to look at it at least and uh and i think there's there's something really cool going on here too where um the children you know the the minors are not allowed to use magic outside of school but um mr weasley of course is and so he's sort of like in charge obviously uh, but the uh, the twins get around that because they slip Dudley a uh, a, a candy that, that causes his tongue to like you know quadruple in size or whatever and like or maybe more than that right it's like it becomes this kind of like grotesque uh, appendage and Mr. I think it becomes four <laughs> feet long before <laughs> there we go okay. uh -huh. Mr. Weasley is left to uh, to clean up the mess right so i think that's you know another sort of funny image of that that sort of theme of responsibility of what comes with the gift um of ways to uh use and misuse the gifts that you're given right for various effects uh he he's obviously um like really mad at them because he wanted to have this great like chance to see muggles in their natural habitat or whatever but at the same time in a way he's like seeing exactly the right example of of what harry's been through all these years and like what the dursleys are like uh and of course what his own family what what they're all about too yeah and it's interesting too to what extent they're both liminal figures right but there's still just a major gap between them Though Weasley is a, a poor man and thus making him a common man, he, uh, who actually works for the Department of Muggles and thus should know the most about Muggles, there's still so much when he comes into a Muggle household that is unfamiliar to him. Like, he doesn't even know what the word electric is, which would be laughable to us as Muggles. And, um, and these Dursleys, even though they pretend to be all plain, do clearly have a magical son who has done magical things in the past and is actually in their care because of magical evil deeds. So they're actually uh, way more in the know than most people, uh, oddly enough, um, uh, which, you know, maybe explains sort of their crazy behavior. You know, if you look at them as sort of like a traumatized family by like a terrible event or something like that, and how they forever live in fear afterwards of the potential for chaos re-erupting in their life. And that's what Harry represents. Um, if you ever but wanted to I be just think it's, Yeah, go on. I was just gonna say, I think it's interesting what you just point out, pointed out, that like, the Dursleys maybe more than most families have a remarkable connection to magic, and yet they eschew it at every turn. Like, we are normal, uh, he didn't even like that there were a bunch of uh, stamps on on the letter. And I, I mean, what's funny, what that reminded me of is one of my friends um, just sent, or well, just got married, and her wedding invitation was was gorgeous. It was a little heavier. It was it was like a mobile, or a mobile like the um, an Alexander Calder type piece, and so there were a lot of moving parts. So it was heavier, and they had put. A bunch of really small uh, value stamps on the piece uh, on the envelope to represent parts of who they were as a couple. So there was like a baseball stamp worth five cents, and there was like a Notre Dame stamp worth ten cents. 
and there was like a, you know, a San Francisco stamp worth 12 cents or something like that. And anyway, I, when it was described, I thought back to the wedding invitation and that like how weird that looks to me. And I live in the, in the real world. Um, but anyway, that's the point. The point is, I think it's interesting that, uh, that, uh, Mr. Weasley like leans in to what he doesn't know and that the Dursleys lean out from what they, they, what little they do, you know, that like Mm. their little knowledge, um, scares the shit out of them. Whereas, um, for Mr. Weasley, sorry, can you guys hear me? Yeah. And I, I just want to, I think you made a great point there because I think what you're laying out is that there are two fundamental attitudes towards life. That there's the one where you accept what you don't know is there, and then you try to sort it out in a conscious way, like Mr. Weasley, or you refuse to acknowledge what even you do know, and then it just erupts in on you and causes chaos, and you have to uh, uh, hope some external thing helps you out. Um, Right. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I meant. I mean, you said it better than I did, but... No, I got yeah. to hear you say it, and that's what I said based on it. So that I thought was... No, I think that's that's excellent because they, they do... They are like the same family in reverse, in a way, right? And one is so hateful with terrible results, and one is so beautiful and wonderful. And they're both... They both have plenty, but in different ways. Like, you know, Vernon Dursley is doing great. He, uh, you know, can afford to give a lot to his family. Um... And, well, even though, um, you know, the Weasleys don't have a ton of money, they have just a ton of all the right stuff, like, which I guess I would just characterize as uh, appropriate love and family or just like a really great and nurturing environment in which to exist. They feel wealthy. Well, so I guess that's something you could debate, uh, wh- whether both of them do have wealth and whether it is the same sort of wealth. And so whether they are the same sort of family in reverse. Uh, but do we want to conclude on that or, or something else? What do you think, Wes? Something else you wanted to talk about? I thought this was like a really, a really interesting way to open the story. I, I like that we got to talk about um, the opening dream a little bit like I hadn't thought about it in those terms at all um but I guess I would be interested if we could like we had been doing this a while ago when we sort of started the the project if we could find a way to have like a a few sections of the program like each week that that are, are sort of followed through I don't know what exactly that should look like but um, in just in the interests of like for, formalizing, right? Or like, I don't know if that's quite the right word for it, but establishing some some recurring uh, uh, ideas that we we're like careful to come back to. Because I have a hard time remembering a lot of times what we've what we've said in the previous episodes and things like that. Um, but so this one maybe for this book it should be to do with um, fires. And we can just like keep an eye out on fire imagery or something like that. Um, 
I, I don't know if that will sure. be. Yeah, I don't know if that'll be like enough. Uh, but I. But okay. Now uh, I, I, I have a like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's like the transformational aspect of it. I think is brought out here. Okay. Yeah. And what about also riddles? Because that's explicitly mm -hmm. stated in the first cap riddles which we encounter, um, and how those house our consciousness. Um, so oh, yeah, fire yeah. And riddles, and because I've always thought, and so this can be a hypothesis then that we test if the other is a theme, that riddles are a major component to our fascination in these stories. And, well, the other one I wanted to suggest was just, you know, snake imagery. Because that's something that we encounter very frequently, and even in the very first image, and the very first um, dream in this. Um, so, and well, I mean, I guess those are just themes, but we were also suggesting segments too, right? And so, well, I guess what I wanted to say is if the listeners wanted to leave a comment or give us a, um, a shout out on Anchor, that would be really interesting too. I think we would all be open to suggestions like that. But um, we're, we're now using the Slack software too. I guess over this next week, we can do homework and set up some new segments and um, produce our new show with some new, uh, new finesses, some new sophisticated. Can I suggest one more pattern for us to look for? Yes, um, and that And that's something I think I already brought it up when we were sort of dancing around the idea of like the differences between the two families, the differences in classes and um i think that that something we should look for is the way that difference between individuals and groups of people plays out um like particularly fear of difference and what is involved with like transcending difference um and or or perhaps like making meaning of it um i know a few a few pods ago maybe like a couple months ago even we talked about the way in which um like the emerging modern Britain um, seems to be like an image uh, or a reality or a backdrop against which the story is told. And I think it might be worth just exploring like um, uh, how does the novel or the series deal with um, or what does it have to say about diversity, but not in like the stereotypical kind of um, buzzword sense, but like the genuine, um, uh, the genu like the the way in which we like make you make use out of what is different about us for the sake of perhaps what we share. Um, I think mean, that that that'd be a worthwhile theme to look for. Who struggles with that? Who doesn't? Why? Etc. Right on. Yeah, definitely. Part of the beauty of the rainbow is the diversity of its parts and the equality of their distribution. And, uh, you know, it seems like every child even knows that. So it's a fundamental. Um, so that's great. That's great. That's great. And, you know, it's interesting to what extent we are looking for those fundamental themes in these books, right? Because this is something you read when you're young, when you're an adolescent, and during a formative period. And so it helps you to form the ethics that you'll have for the majority of your life, because it's like, to what extent do you even read your books in high school and in college? And how many books did you even read? How many books did you read last year? And like, do you go to church for your morality? I don't, 
And it's like, where, what are the actual stories that have formed, helped you to form your character? And for a lot of people, these ones are big, you know, like just like Star Wars, just like J.R.R. Tolkien. And so I think, you know, just to be really real about it in the distribution of these stories, it's very important to know and to try and articulate what it is they're saying because probably they've had an effect on your character if you've read them or, or even watched them or possibly even if you just know about them. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, there's like subconscious moral development that happens when you read. I mean, I know studies have shown, particularly like Ed Sykes studies have shown that, that there is genuine moral advancement or development um, visible in kids specifically with this series. I'll send her on that article. I'm not sure I've shared that with you all, but, um, or like that series of articles, maybe, I don't know when I read them last, but, um, that's a worth that's just a worthwhile investigation i think and i think i think it's interesting that they're doing research on kids with this book to see like who you know to what degree does reading this and talking about it maybe not even talking about it just absorbing the story to what degree does it like form who you are um or you know the way you see the world the way you see others that was particularly where the um the research that I saw was focused, like how does this affect young young people, not just not young people, but like young kids, how does this affect how they see people who are not like them, um, which I think is a certainly a worthwhile question in an increasingly um, an increasingly global world where everybody seems interconnected, and their their diversity is even more. Um, uh, visible as a consequence where everybody can throw their name in the fire and so that's right what do y'all think about five six seven and eight for next time it's uh it's about i think 60 pages a little longer than usual but the quidditch world cup just seems impossible to stop before yeah uh we heard a little bit about it so it would be cool to get to see that uh, yeah incorporate it yeah sounds good i really appreciate that she does a world level event like that and really twice in the course of the book it's uh again i think that's i don't know i don't want to get into it now but uh something like a bigger larger global appeal something something powerful and it's uh well it's something i love about this book the magnificence of it and so well y'all until after Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, Safe right. travels. And next time, something new. Clank. <laughs> clink, clink. See ya. Bye.